So I managed to uh, break the microphone <laughs> you wear on your ear in the first service. So I'm here with the hand mic. And you'll see I'm challenged as it is. So with the hand mic and notes and a Bible and all that, it could be, I'll try to get done here at some point. It's good to be here with you all. I, I love this church. I served here for 23 years. And it's been almost five years since I've stood up here to preach. Um, and in that intervening time, life has been interesting. I've been given the topic of worship in the church to preach on this morning. And all through my pastorate, I preached through books of the Bible. And approaching worship topically um, reminds me why I preach through books in the Bible. Because I, you know, I kind of tried to gather up the whole worship motif throughout Old and New Testaments and put it together, and I bit off more than I could chew. But fear not, beloved. Um, God is good, and it's good to be with his people this morning, and I thank you and look forward to what the Lord may say to us. Um, worship itself is a proper response to God as our creator. We are his people. He formed us. We're the sheep of his pasture. We just sang the 23rd Psalm, which speaks of the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by, beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. All these things apply to Jesus in the New Testament and in the church we are very Christ-centered. We approach God through Christ because Jesus is God. And he made no bones about it. And so whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament or under the Old Covenant or under the New Covenant, worship of God is repeatedly enjoined. It's commanded. It's to ascribe glory due to God to bow down to him, to recognize his greatness and his majesty and his awesomeness and all those things. We properly understand, or worship properly understands and shapes who we are. And scripture teaches us that whatever or whomever we worship, we become like. In Israel's case, they began to worship the gods of the nations and so they became a bloodthirsty and violent and deceitful people and so on. You can read in Jeremiah 7, they come into the temple and claim the temple's theirs, and God says, I'm not with you. And in Romans 1, you can read how people engage in idolatry and the worship of themselves and doing what they want and their lives devolve into chaos and deceit and oppression and violence and sexual perversion and so on. In the West, humanists worship man with the result that every degrading whim of the human heart is honored and exalted and disseminated through mass media. I don't want to talk too much about culture today, but I don't understand our culture. And let me say that um, that became apparent to me last July when I, uh, last July I had a traumatic brain injury. And I'll just tell you quickly the story. I was on the sofa, I think it was a Friday or Saturday. I was reading something. The doorbell rang. I jumped up, 
went to the door, probably took 10 seconds to get there, and when I got to the door and opened it, we have a metal door with a screen as well. I opened it, there was a pest control guy there to sell me pest control services. I suddenly felt very nauseated and knew something bad was about to happen. And before I could say anything to the guy, I literally passed out and on the way down, my head bounced off a buffet there in the entry. And then I smacked it on the back of on wood floor on concrete. And I didn't come to until there were paramedics, literally, <laughs> they had an IV in me and so on. And uh, so it was 10 or 15 minutes that I was out. And this guy, fortunately, at the door called him. Um, anyway, they, they took me to the hospital, and I guess I'll get into that a little bit later. But I ended up with uh, 18 staples in my head and the back of my head where I split it open. And part of the reason I tell you this is because we don't, well, I tell you this so you'll be gracious to me and go, well, you know, one of the reasons I stepped down is because I knew my, I've had mental issues, brain issues for a while, in addition to health issues. And even though I was almost 65, I thought, you know, I'm about 70 now. Well, I'll be 70 here this year. I thought I would be in the pulpit this long, but as it turned out, I, I wasn't, I'm not. Um, but I didn't start in church. I didn't become a Christian. I didn't put my faith in Jesus till I was 33. And so back in 1983, as I'm reading the Bible, I mean, I read it voraciously for two or three hours every day. I, God just put it on my heart. I don't know why I read other things along with it. Became a C.S. Lewis fan and all that as well. But I can remember going to church in the beginning and sitting among the congregants and thinking, this is a little strange. <laughs> it was a little strange to me. I didn't grow up doing that. I didn't grow up singing. I thank the Lord we didn't clap in church back then because I'd have been gone. <laughs> so, you know, bear with us if we don't do everything the way that you, you think we ought to. Um, but I say that because worship in some ways is cultivating a love for God. A desire to know God and to be with the Lord. I'm trying with one hand here. C.S. Lewis, who was one of the guys I read a lot of when I was young in my faith, in a word about praising, he said as he began his Christian journey, so he's talking about worshiping God, praising God, the desire to love God in this way, he had real difficulty with the demand, with the demand that we should praise God. Even more so with the idea that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man, he says, who, who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity. Well, millionaire, it's billionaire today. Every celebrity who gratify that demand. Thus a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and his worshipers threatened to appear to my mind. So he found it kind of strange that if God is so great, why does he demand our worship? And who are these people that accede to it? But upon further reflection, now he was younger than he was 21 or two and was coming back to the church. Lewis knew some things were praiseworthy in themselves, that the ability 
or the inability to admire great art, beautiful music, a good book, would not demean such things, but only those too small-minded or too obtuse or insensible to appreciate them. Such people would only be the lesser, the poorer for it. The in, he says, the incomplete and crippled lives of those who are tone deaf have never truly loved, never truly known friendship, never cared for a good book. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capacious minds praised most while cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. And what Lewis came to see is that God is supremely beautiful and praiseworthy. And so worship isn't just something we do on Sunday morning. Hopefully it's not just the thing you do on Sunday morning. It's corporate worship. But during the week, you meet at some point with God. You read his word. You pray to him. You call out to him or whatever. And in one sense, you are acknowledging that your life is in his hands and that he's caring for you and watching over you. We cannot ascribe to the Lord all the glory due his name if we're consumed by self-love or inflated by the virtues of our own autonomy or self-reliance. It's in worship that we become more godly. We become like the thing that we worship and we meet to worship well, we meet here as the people of God really as much to edify one another, encourage one another, build one another up in worship that recounts the glory of God and his attributes and actions help plant within our souls a love of God that would otherwise grow cold. So we need to draw near to God. We need to worship him, and in doing it, we become more and more godly. It's part of the covenant that God made, that he should be our God and we should be his people, that he will dwell with us. That is the whole thrust, that we have this sustainable relationship with God forever. Not just while we're here, not just for a few years. Um, I, hope I, don't, I hope I don't live another 25 years, really, to tell you the truth. You know, I just soon die of something beside old decrepit age but um, at some point we all pass away and at some point we're forgotten my bride and I were talking about her folks uh, they've both been deceased her mom died this past year and I told my bride the other day well, I hope you cry as much when I'm gone as you do over your mom it's been months she loves me she knows me I'm teasing folks okay don't take me too seriously here. But I did tell her that. <laughs> so anyway, she and her two surviving sisters are going to spread their parents' ashes in the Sierra Nevadas in June. We're all going up there, the brothers-in-law and the sisters and all that. And we were remarking that, you know, once they're gone, the memory of them to grandchildren and great-grandchildren will be lost. I mean, that happens over time. We just get swallowed up, and a new generation comes, and another one leaves, and so on and so forth. But God has us in his hand and will gather us all together. And so this morning, I picked Revelation to actually explain why worship is so 
crucial and important. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and, if you want to turn to Revelation, actually in I want to read part of chapter 1, just the first verse, so you'll understand something. John the Apostle is the one who is given this vision from Jesus. The apocalypsis, the revelation, is from Christ himself. He sends an angel, true enough, but it's a revelation, verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis, the unveiling of something you could never otherwise know, which God gave him, the ESV says, to show to his servants. God gave him to show. The word is literally to signify. Okay, so a sign is different than verbal expression. And Revelation gathers up, Revelation has more Old Testament than any other New Testament book. There's literally like a thousand allusions. It draws together all this imagery from the Old Testament and the prophetic tradition and all those things. And so the, the language in Revelation is a little strange to us at times. But John is writing this as much as anything to encourage Christians who are enduring increasing persecution. There's a, a, an emperor named Domitian, and at this point, it's expected that everybody will worship Caesar. But we don't do that, do we? They didn't do that back in the first century. They weren't willing to bend to save themselves from some kind of problem. I mean, it could cost them their freedom, their job, their social standing. Who knows what it would cost them? But when, when we read the 23rd Psalm and it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or the deepest, darkest valley possible, I will fear no evil, that's not really true. I mean, it's ideally true. <laughs> It's stating it as a fact, but if you're telling me you've never feared what might happen, I don't believe you. We've all had fear at times. But what we do is brace ourselves when we come back to God and realize, hey, my life is in his hands. So here's John writing to the church, and in chapter 4, I know, I know it's Revelation 5, 9 to 14, <laughs> but chapter 4 is going to give us the first throne room scene and it's very close to what we read in Isaiah except there's no temple and there's no hymn of God's garment filling the temple or any of that kind of stuff but there's John who has an angel addressing him and he says chapter 4 verse 1 after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven well, it's a picture, okay? There's not some big door up there. But it's a picture of God revealing to him what's happening. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and carnelian, and so on and so forth, around the throne, etc. I'm going to jump to verse 7, or verse 8. The four living creatures, each one of them with six wings, now here's, it sounds very much like Isaiah, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, which I would say represent the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, but at the end of, at the end of Revelation, when there's a new Jerusalem, the 12 gates have the names of the 12 tribes and the 12 foundations have the name of the 12 apostles. I think that is the same illusion here anyway. Fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him, before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now let me just step away from Revelation for a second and say that the Bible teaches us, the Gospel of John, literally, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? So God was incarnate in Christ. And we heard on Easter Sunday about how... Um, Peter followed Jesus even through all the travails, I want to say to you, there is a sense in which the disciples must have been stunned because all the time they walked with Jesus, there was nothing that ever perturbed him. Nothing was too big for him. No question was too hard. No situation was too difficult. He could still the seas. He could stop the wind. He could walk on water. He could raise the dead. He could cast out demons. He could answer anything. He could shut people up with complete composure and control. And so they expected that Jesus could face any situation that came to him. And yet they watched him be mocked and ridiculed and be crucified and die. Now if the person you've put all your trust in and you think can do anything goes through that experience, and he's your leader, and if he wasn't raised from the dead, do you think they would have gone on and given their own lives? No, they wouldn't have. The whole resurrection story relies on the fact that the apostles totally changed. They went from afraid and scattered and all those things to confident and galvanized, etc., etc., because Christ was raised from the dead. And so here, in chapter 5 of Revelation, I'm going to come back now to Jesus. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. The scroll symbolizes, signifies God's plan for humanity. Written on the front and on the back, you can look at genre, you can look at all that kind of stuff. That's the picture of it. This scroll that's sealed with seven seals, seven's a big number in Revelation. And he sees this scroll. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So this angel shows up, this messenger, powerful, great challenges all of creation 
Who can take that scroll and put it into action? Who can open it up and unfold the plan of God? Let me put it that way. Who's got the power and authority to do this? And no one, verse 3, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. In other words, he was despondent. Totally despondent. There was no hope. If you've ever been where you, where life is not precious to you, you don't even care about living anymore, then you'll understand something of what John is going through. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne, so right there at the throne, basically, and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I know it's very strange imagery, what it's saying is this lamb that's standing there as though it had been slain has all the power and wisdom of God, all the authority of God, if you will. And this lamb is going, you know, it's not literally a lamb. How could it take the scroll? So don't, don't get caught up too much in what it is literally. Verse 7, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, with gold, a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9. Somebody going to put it up there? Thank you. And they sang a new song. Who sang a new song? Everyone gathered around the Lord in this throne room. And new isn't just new in terms of chronology. As a matter of fact, the meaning is not chronological. It's qualitatively, substantively different. Kainos is the word in the Greek, not chronos, which means it's something new and different. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, so they're singing to this lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. It's like the Google number, okay, one with a bunch of zeros saying with a loud voice, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, from now on when there's a praise of God in the book of Revelation, it's also into the Lamb. Okay? Because this Lamb has been given a name that's above every name. We already know that from Ephesians. 
And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Why are people put off by church? Why are people put off by the faith? In some ways, I think it's because they look at our world and they say, What kind of God would allow a world like this? What kind of God rules over a world where there's so much poverty and oppression and so many things wrong, people sold into sexual slavery, etc. I mean, we could go on and on and on with the problems of the world. You could literally list them all day long, but it's not a very happy subject. So we worship in part because it transforms the way we think. It transforms the way, it transforms our heart. The first and greatest commandment, Jesus said, was to love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, mind, and strength, however you want to put it. But those things, your whole being, to love God. How can you love God if you don't really know God? How can you worship this God if you don't ever read his word and understand what he's done for us? Because we live in this fallen world, but we too are fallen. I hear a lot, well, sometimes we overemphasize the whole idea of Christianity as being no more than being forgiven. Well, being forgiven is important. What we call forensic justification or whatever you want to say, it's important. But it's a lot more than that, beloved. God doesn't leave us the way we are. He doesn't intend for us to go into eternity just, well, I got a free pass. If we don't long for things to be right, if we don't long for the glory of God, if we don't long for the justice of God, if we don't long for the righteousness of God, why would we long for heaven? You know, I, I hear the word social justice bantered around. Social justice? You can't even establish justice between two parties. Social justice would require that we would know intimately the lives of 360 million Americans, their whole background, all their opportunities and responsibilities and how they handle it and so on and so forth. It's impossible. We can't establish social I understand it's a nice sentiment, but it can't be established. It can't be done any more than we could find the ideal climate that keeps the earth in some state that people think it ought to be in. I don't know. I'm not a denier. <laughs> well, kind of. <laughs> what I deny is that we could do a whole heck of a lot about it. But anyway, we're not going to save the world. The world is passing away. Understand that. All things are going to be made new. Everything is going to be made new. Um, when I took that fall and had that traumatic brain injury, did I already mention that? Somebody nodded at me if I did. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's part of the problem. I don't remember very well anymore. Okay. So it would be a couple of weeks before I actually went into the hospital to have it diagnosed. I mean, I went... I went to the emergency room, 
the paramedics that I got an IV in me and they said, well, we've called an ambulance and I knew, hey, it's gonna cost like two grand to ride an ambulance to the hospital. I said, my wife will come get me. <laughs> and the pest control guy goes, I'll take him. <laughs> he did. <laughs> anyway, um, I found out, you know, they put like 18 staples in my head. But I found out over the next couple of weeks, I, didn't, I, I went to the emergency room and got treated for the lacerations and split and opened the back of my head, but they released me. But over the next couple of weeks, my wife said I was crazy. I mean, I was at home roaming around at night. <laughs> I'd go upstairs and downstairs, and I had this black light looking for stuff, and I was nuts. And I would, I would get mad at her and say these things, and... Finally, I guess, she got my brother-in-law, who, who is an anesthesiologist, he's a doctor, he came one Saturday morning, he showed up, and he talked for a couple hours to convince me I needed to go into the hospital. And it's a good thing I, yeah, why? <laughs> Did she say why? <laughs> I may go there later on today, who knows? <laughs> but in the hospital, I, what they found is I had a problem with my heartbeat as well. And so uh, they put a heart monitor on me, and for, you know, for a month they monitor you. Well, I was going to see a neurologist right across the street from, this was at St. Joe's, like a couple of weeks. After I got out of the hospital, I went to see this neurologist, and they had this heart monitor on me, and they were at St. Joe's monitoring it. Well, I, my heart would stop. That's what made me pass out, I, I believe. They... At the time, it was diagnosed as what they call orthostatic hypotension, which means when you change the position you're in, your blood pressure drops. But my heart would stop. It would have these long pauses. And I'm sitting in the neurologist's office, and I, I said to my bride, I feel really sick. You better get a wastebasket, because I knew I couldn't get up and make it to the men's room. Well, next thing I know, she's patting my chest, the neurologist is out there with another doctor in the waiting room sort of looking at me. I'd pass, I, my heart had stopped for 15 seconds. And so St. Joe's is madly paging my wife, you know, you need to get him over here. <laughs> anyway, I ended up with a pacemaker the next day. God works in strange ways. I don't know why. I really don't know why. Um, but what I do know is that as we get to know this God, and this is the thing that the Lord has taught me most poignantly in the last couple years, because right before I had this traumatic brain injury, I had this epiphany, which I will not go into, but I've had three of them in my life, which means God spoke to me in a way I could not doubt. The presence of God was with me in a way I could not doubt. And he assured me of something that was hard to believe, but it's pretty much come to pass already. Um, I lost my train of thought. So anyway, nice thing is we're going to be renewed in everything, in everything. Even my mind is going to be made whole. People who, look, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not with respect to everyday life because, well, it does matter. I don't mean to, 
dismiss it that way. All I'm saying is the pains and sorrows, the slings and arrows of this world are going to hit you no matter who you are, no matter how faithful you are, no matter how right you try to live before God, things are going to go wrong. And so one of the things we do when we worship God is not only learn to trust him more and to love him more, but we also learn to be gracious and forgiving and to understand that we're not perfect either. And this world may be a mess, but we ourselves were a mess. And we ourselves missed the mark. We fall short, we overshoot, we do all kinds of things. And one of the things we say when we mess up is, I'm only human. As if our humanity is defined by how badly we mess up. (laughs) Put it in nice language right now. No. Our humanity was made in the image of God. It's marred, and God intends to change it. I'm going to go on to chapter 7 in Revelation, just a couple of verses if you're with me. Chapter 7, verse 14. I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Now, we're not particularly hungry in our country. Maybe some people are, but we're not. But there are people, there are places and people who really are hungry, who really don't have sufficient food, who really have difficult lives. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb is in the midst, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now if you know Revelation very well, you know twenty one is sort of the same thing when the new heaven and new earth come. God does this for us. Because sometimes life is painful and difficult. And the reason I say this is because just coming to church doesn't mean we don't have times of grief and sorrow. But the closer we are to God and the closer we are to one another, the more we're able to bear up and press on. To comfort one another and to be God's people. To be transformed from one degree of glory to another to be grateful rather than gripe about things and complain about things, to show grace rather than judgment and act like, you know, what's wrong with everyone else. I think of how our nation has almost devolved into what I would call tribalism or nationalism or whatever you want to call it, rich and poor, male and female, whatever. There's so many divisions in our country It grieves me. And I don't think there's any putting it straight. Well, this is one of the things my TBI did. When I actually kind of began to recover, it took a while. They gave me some drugs for psychotic stuff. 
But it started to work right away, I'm told. <laughs> uh, when I went into the hospital, I guess I didn't mention this. The first night, the hospital called my bride and said, if someone doesn't come down here and spend the night with him, we're going to have to restrain him, put him in restraints. She said, please don't do that. <laughs> and fortunately, uh, some of the brethren in this church would take turns spending the night with me. I was there for seven nights. Um, but that's what church is about. The, the goal of our faith, the goal of what we're doing is to someday live in a renewed creation in the presence of God in a sustainable way where things are right and there's love and joy and peace and so on. And I'm going to turn to the very end of Revelation chapter 22 because this is important, I think. So you have the New Jerusalem, and you have this, all that goes with it. In verse 16, Jesus says, I have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Listen to this. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears come, and let the one who is thirsty. Thirsty for what? For things to finally be right. For whatever divides us and whatever angers us and whatever makes us estranged and so on is no longer there. I personally think we'll spend the first, I'll spend a long time just going around to people telling them I'm sorry for things I said or did. But I look forward to it. I actually do. I think there'll be a great healing. I really do. I think we'll make amends to each other without excuse. I think that's part of what heaven will be. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires, what's your heart's desire? Take the water of life without price. I love that. That's pretty much it right there. I mean, there's a warning about not taking anything away, and there's a promise, surely I'm coming. And there's a little benediction, the grace of the Lord be with you all. But that's it. That's the end of the gospel. Let whoever desires come and take of the water of life without price. That's what you can do anytime your heart desires to truly abide in the Lord and to begin this journey of faith. And so I, I know in the congregation there's all kinds of troubles and sorrows because our life has that. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes everything's good and we think it's going to continue and we find out, eh, now there's going to be some bumps in the road. Put your faith in God. Worship the Lord. Be a part of the family of God and um, come with us and in, let's encourage one another and build one another up. And I, I want to read one last thing from Colossians while they're coming here, which uh, Paul writes to the church at Colossus. 
He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if, one, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Ouch. I know some people that have a really hard time forgiving, even in the church. It's not a good thing. But as the Lord has forgiven, so we need to forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Listen to this. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's who we are, beloved. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, forgiving one another, building one another up, being the people of God. May the grace of the Lord be with you all.